Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. We are going to begin our discussion of salvation with a philosophical question. And to help us with this philosophical question, I have brought a helper, an associate. And so here is my helper. Is Monsieur Andaga. There he is. Uh, he's going to be helping us. He's actually delivering the lecture today. Um, Monsieur Amberger, I want to ask you a question. I'm not actually talking to him, but I'm talking to you. Um, but if he wants to talk, it's okay. Um, my question for you is, who drew Monsieur Amberger? Who did it? Was it me? Was it the pen? Did the pen draw Monsieur Amberger? Or did I draw Monsieur Amberger? Who did it? Somebody give me a straight answer. Who did it? I did. I was me, so the pen had nothing to do with it, right? Mm-hmm. It was completely. No, you no. used the pen. I used the pen. Well, so you're saying it was the pen that did it? The pen doesn't have the power to do it. The pen doesn't have the power. That sounds confusing to me. I don't know. I mean, a simple answer. Somebody give me the straight truth. Who did it? Was it me or was it the pen? It was, okay, yeah, it was me. We'll say that. But then what does the pen have to do with it? Philosophically, there is a way of dealing with this. The way of dealing with this is looking at different kinds of causality. So that you have a cause when there are different primary cause, you have a secondary cause. And so, rather than the way that I have been framing this up, up to this point, is with there only being sort of one plane of causality. So that I'm trying to get you to tell me, was it me or was it the pen that did it? Who was responsible for Monsieur Amberger taking over this supposedly academic talk that we're supposed to be doing? Who did it? Was it was it the pen or was it me? And the way that I'm framing that, I'm framing that in such a way that there's only one point of causality. It's not as though my working is such that it goes and takes away from the pen's working or vice versa. It's not as though the pen's agency somehow subtracts from my agency. And so I'm going to read a quote um, from St. Thomas Aquinas uh, on Monsieur Amberger, uh, which if you didn't know that, that show, he shows up in the sumo, but he does. Um, this is what he says about this. He says, one action does not proceed from two agents of the same order, but nothing hinders the same action from proceeding <laughs> from a primary and secondary agent. Say it one more time. One action does not proceed from two agents of the same order, but nothing hinders the same action from proceeding from a primary and secondary agent. What does that mean then? That means that philosophically, the right answer is not this. We can X this out, that's incorrect. It's not that I did 60% and that depended, you know, 40%. Philosophically, the right answer is I am the primary agent, and I, I did, you know, 100%. I, I was 100% an agent, so I was the prime agent behind it. The pen, this must be really confusing. <laughs> what have you got me into? Um, so I'm, 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 I'm the prime agent. The pen also, 100% responsible, but in a secondary way. And it is my acting first as a cause, acting 100%, 100% willing Mr. Amberger to be here, which enabled then the pen to be able to draw, to be able to function, to do this. And so this, we avoid saying something ridiculous like 60-40, when we realize, no, there's two different agents. The two agents are of a different order. They're not operating on the same plane of causality. Now, hypothetically, we could say, I might, you know, say, I desire to draw this. I desire, I 100% will this. And if we um, want to attribute will 
my friend here, Mr. Penn, uh, we could say, you know, imagine maybe the pen doesn't want to do it. Maybe the pen is out of ink. Maybe the pen thinks, I don't like hamburgers. I'm a vegetarian. I don't like French people. I don't want to do it. I don't want to draw Monsieur Hamburger. Um, and so in that in that case, we could say, okay, well, I might 100%, you know, will this and I'd be 100% responsible. And the pen isn't actually sort of, even though I am enabling it, it is resisting in some kind of way. And so we can imagine, kind of to use our imagination a little bit, we can imagine a scenario like that. In any case, this seems as though philosophically, this just makes more sense than this. Um, we will refer back to this. And I think uh, when we get this principle down, then we can see how there are different ways of interpreting the biblical data, which will lead you to different kinds of results and ends, depending on philosophically the way that you think about agency. What we're talking about today we're talking about salvation, we're focusing particularly on the doctrine of justification. Uh, the doctrine of justification, if you uh, sort of famously identified by Martin Luther as the doctrine by which the church stands or falls, uh, it is very important. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do a very brief introduction biblically to the doctrine of justification. Um, what, is this, what does this mean? We're going to look at some of the ways of interpreting this, and then we're going to go and say, how did the early church interpret this? How did this all make sense? How does Luther interpret it differently, and why does he interpret it differently? Um, and I think that when we get that, you can see how there's actually a, a coherence to the thought on both sides. And actually, the difference is not one side's reading the Bible, the other side's not reading the Bible. The difference is the way that they're thinking, conceiving of the relation between human and divine causality. So let's begin briefly with looking at this material. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you, I mean, biblically, there's so much material we could be going over. I'm going to read two passages for you. I'm going to read the end of Romans 3, and I'm going to read the end of James 2 for you. Just as two passages which talk about faith and works in relation to justification. And by the way, just for our purposes, we can take salvation and justification as being basically synonymous. So when we say one, kind of think the other. One other thing to note, the English language in relation to the underlying Greek and Hebrew is very confusing because we take a certain word group, so uh, the, the dikaios word group, and we get two different words out of it. We get the just word family, the righteous word family. They both, it's just dikaios, dikaiosune, dikaiao. It's just one thing. In English, for whatever reason, it jumps back and forth between them um, in a way that seems almost like unaccountable. And so, just so you know, when I'm using either the words with the justice word root or the righteous word root, Paul or James or whatever biblical author we're dealing with, they are, it's just one thing that's there. So um, what let's do is I will read for us um, the, um, so this is Romans uh, 3. Uh, Paul has just gotten wrapped up talking about how it is that Jews and Gentiles are both under the enduring influence of sin. And he says this, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous, or the word there, justified, in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where, then, is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. The Greek says literally law of works, then he says law of faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? 
Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. I'm going to read another passage, which is sometimes interpreted as being, uh, you might say, um, having a distinct emphasis from what Paul is talking about here. And we'll get into some of the distinctions and the ways that they can be understood together. This is from James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things that needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled. Uh, sorry, the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What I want for us to do is I'm going to take us through an overview of some disputed questions that you'll find within Scripture on the doctrine of justification. So some of the things that, you know, questions that are asked. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll look at the way that historically some of these things have been interpreted. And we'll go through first the early church and then less looking at, in a sense, trying to intuit the philosophical paradigm that sits below that. And then we'll get into Luther and some of the things that precede Luther as well. So as to make intelligible why it is that Luther says the kinds of things that he does. So what we can do is we can look at this in four, four questions when it comes to justification. So here we go. So first, the nature of justification. What do we mean when we're talking about being justified? What is that, what is that referring to? There are, to simplify things a bit, there are three categories that are often suggested. The first is forensic. So forensic means, if you think of like a law court. So if you are forgiven, that is a forensic sense of this. And so this takes justification as referring primarily, or in some cases exclusively, to the forgiveness of sins. It's a legal declaration. The second is effective. What does effective mean? Well, an effective sense of justification means that what's happening in God's justifying work is that he is taking an unrighteous or ungodly person and making them into a righteous or godly person. It is effecting. It is it's making you just. It's making you righteous. The third sense, and this one is a little bit under, maybe underrepresented, but you can see it, and I think that there's you know good arguments that you can see for it. Incorporative. What does this mean? This means that justification is less to do with the individual's state or status, and more to do with their incorporation into Christ's body. That this is the fundamental and the primary sense. And you can make at least an argument for this, on the, you know, if you're looking at uh, you know, passages like you know, Galatians 2, something like this. And often interpreters who argue for this, they lean heavily on you know, baptism and how it is that baptism, the new covenant sign, which corresponds with circumcision, the old covenant, if circumcision is what makes you part of the covenant, part of the, you know, the people within the old covenant, 
and baptism is the new covenant counterpart, then it's intelligible how it is that baptism or that justification could be understood in primarily and in corporate sense. And so those are three ways that the nature of justification can be understood. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but just categories of how it is you can understand what, what Paul and James are talking about when they're talking about being justified. Second is, oh, we'll, sorry, we'll go along with this. We'll say place. Place. Nature and place. What's the place of justification? Well, you can see if you take the effective sense as one example. The, if you have hold to an effective sense of justification, well, justification is taking place inside me. It is myself being changed. On the other side, if you take a forensic sense, you'd say, okay, well, maybe that isn't necessarily referring to something that is inside me. Maybe that's something that's outside me. So, you know, my account or my status before God. And that's what's talking about. Again, those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. And you can hold to, you know, two or three senses of these, although you will find people who will once again, you know, go and narrow it down to just, just one. And so you can say, uh, so how we say it. <coughs> So, outside of us or inside of us? Where is the justification taking place? The second question, so the timing of justification. When does it take place? Actually, if you go through the biblical material here, you'll find there's a lot that you can say. And so, uh, is it, we'll say, A, an initial act? Is this something that is, again, if you want to use it, you know, the analogy of circumcision. Um, is it something that happens at the point, at the moment of conversion? Well, there's pretty good biblical you know, material to work with that you know, would suggest that the reading. Second, future, a future act. Something that's going to take place in the future. Um, well, where would you get that? Well, you know, Paul, for instance, in Romans 2.13, talks about how the doers of the law will be justified. So there's a future justification that he has in view. And so there's parts of scripture that would seem to suggest that. And then here, let's say, ongoing. Is there a sense in which justification can be understood as an ongoing reality as well? Well, if you think, if you're thinking, you know, justification in terms of transformation, that's intelligible. And if you think maybe, you know, the James passage, how it is that you have Abraham, who is initially justified by faith, and then James talks about how it is that his faith was perfected by his works. And then that's when you really see it's truly fulfilled that he is, that he's justified. And so it can be understood in an ongoing way as well. Third, let's say the means. So how is it that we're justified? So let's take the sort of standard dichotomy. So we've got... Um, Faith on one side, and then works of the law on the other side. So that's the standard Pauline dichotomy. You're justified by faith apart from works of the law. You see it in a few few places. Really, really well well known, especially if you're you know from certain denominational contexts, some of which I sort of share in my own heritage. How do you understand this? What does it mean to be justified by faith apart from works of the law? Well, faith. Um, is understood by a lot of people as being an active kind of thing. And this relates in some ways to, if you think the word itself, the Greek word, uh, if you Greek, that is pistis, uh, it, it means faithfulness as well as faith. And often, just when you're translating it, you're naturally translating it as, as faithfulness. And so because of that, a lot of interpreters will understand faith as an active kind of fidelity, and sort of fidelity like what Abraham had in relation to God, so that he truly does become a you know, friend, friend of God. And so you can think of other things, like in you know, Paul's writings, he talks about like, the obedience of faith. He you know, tends to use faith and uh, obedience as terms kind of interchangeably. And so there's a lot to be said for thinking of faith in, that, you know, in an active sense. Um, you might, however, wish to see it as essentially passive and receptive and is not active. And one of the reasons that you might do this is if your work, since your interpretation of works of the law is a very expansive one. And so let's look at the other term, 
works of the law. What are we talking about here? Here there are three options. And so we'll go. Mm -hmm. The first option, historically, has been to understand it as referring specifically to the Torah. That this is, do, you know, do Christians within the period of the New Covenant have to continue to follow the Mosaic law? And within these debates, which you see coming up over and over, circumcision, the Sabbath, food laws, if you ask our brothers who've been going through, you know, the early church fathers in the past couple of days, you just see these same things over and over talked about. And so that is, would be option A, would be to understand focusing specifically on the question of the Torah. And there's a good reason for Paul for, you know, for holding to, to such a view. The second view would be this. You could say, um, works minus grace. But you could say any works that a person is going to do apart from the empowering of God's grace. Now, this, is, this goes particularly back to St. Augustine and, and within the Pelagian controversy, where he's arguing against Pelagius, this is the interpretation that he gives of works of the law in Paul. He says, this, is, you know, this can be anything that a person does apart from the empowerment of God's grace. This does not include works that are empowered by God's grace, which he does see as being meritorious, because if it's empowered by God's spirit, well, then it's Christ working in you, and the things that Christ does are meritorious. And so that is not within the category of works of the law for him, if it's empowered by God's grace. A third view would be this. Um, works with an underline. <laughs> anything, anything that you're going to do, any kind of activity, any sort of fill in the blank, anything that is not passive, there it is. It's right there. And guess what? If you're already converted and this is done under the power of God's grace, that's, there it is. It's still there. It's still work for the law. Um, that, that's another way of interpreting the text. So that's a third option for that. And you can see how the way that you interpret one of these might lead you, influence your interpretation of what you think actually, you know, Paul's target is there, and then also vice versa. And so that's a bit on the context of justification. Then finally, oh, sorry, on the means of justification, finally, let's look at context. So when I say context, what am I referring to? Well, let's think of the relationship between Paul and James, because Paul, great, it's my buddy. Like, we're almost as good of friends as me and Monsieur Amberger there. Like, he's fantastic. But he's also not the only voice. There's more than one voice within this. And so if you're thinking the canonical context, how would you relate something like what you're seeing in Paul to what you see in, say, St. James and what he talks about, about not being justified by faith alone? Well, there's a few options we have here as well. Uh, a, option A is, sorry, let me find it in the dark over here, uh, is to focus on the timing of these works. So what does that mean? It means that Paul is referring to all works, perhaps, that are done up, you know, at, prior to the moment of conversion. So he's talking about pre-conversion works. And James is talking about the role of works post-conversion. So St. Augustine, for instance, when he's kind of going through this, this is what he tends, tends to focus on. And if you think of, you know, what he's, what Paul says with, you know, the forgiveness of the, you know, the sins, the deeds that have happened beforehand, it does seem as though at that point in Romans 3, that it's talking about an initial sort of conversion. Well, then what's the role of works afterwards? What about the deeds that happened afterwards? Well, that would be then what James is talking about. So that's one way of understanding it. Another way is seeing... Um, the kind of works as being the distinction, which is to say, Paul is focusing again specifically on the question of, do you have to continue to obey the Torah? Do you have to you know, follow circumcision, Sabbath food laws, the things that make you part of the Jewish nation and covenant? And that is his target. From James's standpoint, it's pretty clear that he has good works, works of mercy, as what he is positively commending. And it's less clear from a Pauline standpoint that those are the objects of his objections. If you think of you know, Romans 2, for example, as he says there, the doers of the law will be justified. And it's pretty clear in Romans 2 that he's talking about good works. So that's another way of understanding how it is that these can fit together. A third way is the nature of faith. The nature of faith. If you think within 
Paul is Paul is using faith and obedience. He's using you know basically you know interchangeably. It's pretty clear that this is a in a sense a relational concept for him. It's perhaps less clear that that is what James is talking about. And you can see within the Greek and some of the nuances in the Greek, which we won't we'll talk about it afterwards. We talk about it, but within some of the nuances of the Greek, you can see that it's a different kind of thing that James is talking about, or at least it can be suggested that's the case. So, for instance, it says that you know you believe that there is one God. The demons believe that and tremble. So clearly, whatever it is, whatever the sort of faith is that James is talking about, it's you know compatible with being a demon. And so uh, perhaps it's a different sense of faith than what it is that Paul is talking about. So it's another way that can be understood as, you know, being compatible. Uh, option D is to say, nope, sorry, they're incompatible. Uh, one says you're justified by faith, the other one says you're not justified by faith, just justified apart from work, or by works. Incompatible, doesn't work, sorry, there it is. Option D is nope. Uh, so here's some interpretive questions on justification. If you're reading, uh, if you read big, boring books on, you know, biblical scholarship and things like that, commentaries and all kinds of stuff, these are the kinds of issues that you're talking about. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us through briefly what it is that the early church says about this. So if you're looking at the early church fathers, this is as far as, you know, my own research area. This is, this is where I spend tons and tons of time. So I can take you through briefly how they understand this. And then we'll have a look at Luther, which is going to be lots of fun. The early church. How do they understand this to work? Well, the early church tends to focus both on the forensic and effective senses of justification. And they frankly seem like they're two sides of the same coin when you're looking at early Christian interpretation. Uh, they will talk about it as the forgiveness of sins. They'll talk about it as the renovation and transformation of the heart. They just talk about it in all these kinds of ways. There's a couple of instances where it seems as though there's the incorporative sense is it, you know perhaps the, the one that is they're focusing on the most. That's maybe subsidiary. Uh, the one that's probably most common is the effective sense. You do just see that everywhere. So for instance, if you're reading St. Augustine, he almost exclusively talks about justification in effective terms. Does that mean that it doesn't include the forgiveness of sins? Not necessarily. It's still, it's still there. That's still a part of it. But he just focuses really clearly on this is what happens when God takes an unjust person and makes them into a just one. That is what it means to be justified. So you can see uh, for the early church, oh, I don't think we re rewrite all of it, but maybe what we'll do is I'll underline. You kind of have this here, so you have that double underlined. When it comes to the place of justification, you tend to see it as being something that's happening inside somebody. Because again, it's referring to the transformation that God works in humanity to take us from being unjust and actually making us just. So that tends to be where you're seeing, but again, it's not really, there's not big conflicts anybody has over this within the early church. When it comes to timing, the early church, they will they'll use all of these because there is actually, you know, pretty good biblical warrant for all of them. And so um, they will talk about it as an initial action which takes place at conversion and particularly the reception of baptism, which is actually interesting because this is one of the areas of the early church and Luther tend to actually be on completely the same page as the way that they see justification and baptism as being integrally linked. And so it will can be understood as an initial thing. They'll talk about it as a future thing and they'll also talk about it as an ongoing reality because Again, if justification refers to making just, well, there is something that is definitive that happens at our moment of conversion, that happens at baptism, that happens with the profession of faith. But that's also something that we grow in. And so what you might say is for the early church, there is not a clear distinction between what some later theologians will make between justification and sanctification. There are two ways of saying the same thing. One says make righteous, the other one says make sanctus, makes holy. And those are two ways of saying the same thing. For our third one, if we look at the way that this dichotomy is understood, the early church, um, quite uniformly actually, understands faith in an active sense. Now, this doesn't mean that faith is something that we do. Like, I'm going to, God just going to look at me independently exercising my faith, because it is understood both as the means by which we receive this gift, 
and then also the means by which we hang on to the gift that we've received. And so if you think of how the word itself means both faith and faithfulness, you seem to correspond with that. And so it's not as though it doesn't have any kind of passive sense because it is something that's receptive, but it's received something and then holds on to it as well. As a result, when you're looking in the early church, they'll talk about faith in this active sense all the time. A couple of good quotes, uh, St. Irenaeus says, um, to believe in him is to do his will. To believe in him is to do his will. Or another one from St. Augustine, he says that faith and a good life are inseparable, yea, faith itself is a good life. So you can see how closely linked those are, sort of faith and good works to one another. Um, on the other side of that, when it comes to the interpretation of works of the law, there is a really clear, you know, from a standpoint of what they understand Paul to be talking about, it focuses on the Torah, on the question of how did, you know, Jews relate to Gentiles? How does Christ relate to Moses? Do we have to continue practicing the Mosaic law within the period of the New Covenant? Which the answer is being no. The major minority report that you have on this is with St. Augustine, as I mentioned. So here, you see little A there. It's not an anarchy sign. It's Augustine, in case you're wondering. Um, that is his interpretation that he focuses on, again, in the context of the Pelagian controversy. Now, is that an either-or? It really isn't for Augustine, because he initially goes and interprets this as books in particular on the Torah. He also, after the Pelagian controversy, still talks about it as folks in the Torah. So it kind of depends on who he's talking to and what the particular controversy is. One of the things that's interesting, I think, is when you're looking at the early church, you can see a number of instances, actually, where they use the phrase faith alone. You know, later history uh, becomes a little controversial. They use this phrase also, which you think, well, how does that, how does that work? Well, you can see ways in which faith is you know active it does all these things and so it's it's closely linked with good works but you can also understand it in a way as this is the foundation for everything else that gets built up upon it so i'm going to read for you a passage from origin from his commentary on romans uh where he, he talks about this and so um let me grab this for you uh this is origin for faith this is his explanation of faith alone for faith which believes in the one who justifies is the beginning of being justified by God. In this faith, when it has been justified, is firmly embedded in the soil of the soul, like a root that has received rain, so that when it begins to be cultivated by God's law, branches arise from it, which brings forth the fruit of works. The root of righteousness, therefore, does not grow out of the works but rather the fruit of works grows out of the root of righteousness. That root, of course, of righteousness, which God also credits even apart from works. So you can see faith alone is itself the foundation of everything else. But that faith is not meant to be something that is by itself. And whether or not the fruit is produced is itself consequential. And so to continue on here, but perhaps someone who hears these things should become lax and negligent in doing what is good, if in fact faith alone suffices for him to be justified. To this person we shall say that if anyone acts unjustly after justification, it is scarcely to be doubted that he has rejected the grace of justification. Um, finally, context. So how is it the early church understands the context of this? Well, you can see if their understanding of faith is already something which is closely compatible and sometimes almost synonymous with living in a faithful way, even if there is a receptive element to it, then there's not going to be a whole lot of issues when it comes to making Paul and James sort of be on the same, the same page. And so it's actually interesting. Uh, you find very little controversy on anything between Paul and James within the early church. And you can understand, again, the timing is what St. Augustine focuses on. Other church fathers will you know, focus on other ways of understanding it together. But from their standpoint, it's really easy to understand as being compatible because, you know, as St. Augustine says, if you don't understand them in a compatible way, well, then your readings of Paul won't make any sense either because, again, he says the doers of the law will be justified. And so it, they, you just don't have a whole lot of issues. So here you go. You have all this. One of the things that unites all of these figures is the presupposition that causality works 
in this way. I know I'm circling something with the same color, which is probably not the greatest thing to do. Um, but there you have it. The presupposition that causality works this way. This is the underlying framework, which is presupposed, which is why the church fathers can talk about God graciously giving us salvation 100%. It's something that he gives us, that he effects for us. He does all of this. He is the source of it. It's, there's no way that humanity could attain it on its own. They also talk about salvation as something that we have a participatory role in, that he enables. And it's something where there's real conditionality to it. It's something where we, if you want to use the analogy, as an agent, we are the pens that can choose to draw or not draw Monsieur Amberger. Um, and he is, he as the primary cause is willing, that's what he wishes to do, but the, you know, the, pen, the pen has free will. The pen can say, do I want to do this? Do I not want to do this? Do I want to go along with what God is doing or do I want to resist? And so as a result, you find free will affirmed across all of these early church fathers. And again, it's interesting, even St. Augustine, who has the strongest emphasis on predestination within the early church, even he is emphatic over and over saying that free will still exists. And this question is, well, how should you coordinate those in your, in your thought? And he really, really works to show, no, they still can be coordinated, even in you know instances like Pharaoh, for example, with you know God hardens his heart. He says, this doesn't mean that Pharaoh didn't harden his heart at the same time as well. And so you can see the philosophical framework that presupposes all of this is God is the primary actor for our salvation. He acts 100%. He enables us by his grace to respond. Will we actually respond? If we look forward, we can see within the late medieval period, this framework, which is you know, the dominant framework, which you might say called a non-competitive framework, this starts to get replaced by some innovations. And so let's see, uh, anybody know, my guys, Winger Vakum? Betty, a little bit. What order was he a part of? Not Dominican. Not <laughs> Dominican. So, Franciscan. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean that. I, 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 uh, I go to a parish that's run by Franciscans, and I love them. So that's a, that's a joke for my Dominican friends. Um, William of Ockham. What's William of Ockham? What, what, what does he want to do? Yeah, Occam's razor. Occam's razor, excellent. What Occam loves to do? Loves to simplify. Loves to simplify. Use Occam's razor. Got all this complicated stuff. People talk about complicated different things and weird complicated stuff about causality, different planes of causality and weird things and draw hamburgers on the board for no reason and think that there's something significant about it. Like, why don't you just simplify things? Let's just talk about things in sim you know, simpler ways. Well. Theologians, philosophers within this school of thinking start to talk about humanity and humanity's relation to divine action in ways that instead of having this sort of, kind of two-tiered system of causality, start to think of divine and human action as taking place within the same plane of causality. There's other things that are going on that influence this. If you think of like Renaissance humanism, you know, stuff like man as the measure of all things, for example. Um, what you start to find is you start to find theologians within this Franciscan kind of Occamist school who are talking about humanity as having an independent agency. So it's not as though everything that we're doing, whether good or evil, in some way has, you know, is only enabled by God's agency and the fact that he has sort of you know, given us all of this and we're always just secondary causes. It simplifies everything. It puts it all on one line. So it does... This over here, I might erase uh, mat and pen. Um, but what, what we'll do is we'll say here, Occam, and within the Occam system, you, instead of having two lines here, you simplify it. You just got one. There's one sense in which, you know, actions are happening. And hum in humanity is, again, not everybody, not all over the place, but you do see this. People are starting to talk to it as if they have a kind of independent agency so that 
whatever we're doing, whatever God's doing, it's within the same plane of causality. Uh, this is particularly exemplified by uh, a theologian called Gabriel Beale, who was a very prominent theologian uh, who was just before the time of Luther, within the Occamist, kind of this other name that goes by this, the, the nominalist school. Um, he was the main figure that Luther, as a you know, young friar, studied, not under directly, but it was people who studied under him. So he was the main theological and philosophical influence. And Luther, when he gets started, he's all about it. He completely imbibes everything within this school and then reacts very heavily against it while still retaining some of the same presuppositions and some of the same underlying framework. So this is from um, a very good book by Catherine Tanner, uh, who's a, a great theologian. And she's, this is her talking about Gabriel Beale. Um, she says this. Uh, she says that according to Gabriel Beale, uh, this is her, her annual way of, of phrasing it, divine and created agencies are included within a single linear order of predication. Divine and human agencies are included within a single linear order of predication. So this is directly against what we read in the beginning, what Thomas was talking about, which is representative also of the early patristic tradition, where you have, there is, you know, the primary cause, but there's and nothing, if you're talking about, you know, people down the same order, then you wouldn't talk about the same actions in the same way. But if you have different orders, well, then there's no contradiction in saying that something is done completely by the primary cause and also completely by the secondary cause. For Beale, for those of part of this school, there's only a single order of predication. This, I will suggest to you, is the key for understanding Martin Luther's thought. Because when you get this, there are so, and, in, and this is, I mean, this is just for me personally, I spend so much time in these writings. I spend so much time going through these things. And there's frankly things that you read and you're just like, there's no way he said that. That's not a real thing. There's like, no way he actually says that. And you, he actually says it. He's like, how in the world does it make sense? Well, if you, as he did, was you're part of this nominalist school, if you're thinking philosophically that divine created agencies, that they're all, all that activity is only on one single linear order of predication, well, you can see how he would reach some of the conclusions that he does. And so, sorry, give me just one second here to make sure I'm not missing anything. This then explains some of the things that Luther says. So we say, um, here we got uh, William Bach and the Franciscan down here, and then we got Slade Martin. So let's say, what are some of the things that he said? We're just like, where does that come from? Um, how about um, righteousness? What about us trying to attain righteousness, trying to get righteousness? You would think. That's probably a good thing. Like, you know, probably God wants for more of us to want righteousness, right? Instead of not wanting it, if that's the alternative. Uh, for Luther to seek and strive after righteousness is not just sin. It is the epitome of sin. It is the epitome. It's the essence of sin. It's the worst sin there is. How in the heck does that work? Well, if... There is a single linear order of predication. And if God is supposed to be the one that's saving us, he is the savior, that's who God is, that's what he does. If you are striving after righteousness, if you're seeking to be justified, what you are doing is you are taking from God what is his. And you're not just sort of stealing you know, anything. You are stealing the the, the essence of divine identity, which is to be the savior. And not only are you doing that, you are making yourself into God. You are making yourself the savior. And so it's really interesting. He has this really fascinating passage in his lectures on Galatians where he says, this is what Christ is talking about. When he says that many will come in my name saying, I am he. When he says that all these false messiahs will go and show up. This is those who try to save themselves by their own works. Well, why, why, is that, why is that such an issue? Because there's only one order, and God is the one who is the Savior. He 
saves us 100%. He is 100% the one who acts for our salvation. But if there's only one linear order, then that means even if we try to take one little percent over here from us, we are stealing it from him. We're setting ourselves up in his place. Luther says this is what the abomination of desolation actually was. It was people who were trying to save themselves by their works. Now, let's think about this. This is interesting because we should backtrack this a little bit. If you think of somebody like Gabriel Beale, he also won linear order predication. And so you can see, really not hard to see, what somebody like Luther would be reacting against. Because say you are like Beale, you just got, there's only, that's one order. Well then, Clearly, humanity is told to do things, the stuff we're said to do. So there must be some way that this is, you know, a, you know, maybe not a 50-50 proposition. But maybe God does, I don't know, say 75, and then us is, that's only 95%, uh, 20. We'll say 25, that's even better. Uh, I'm not a math teacher, so. Uh, so let's say, let's say, you know, Gabriel Beale's theology, just throw some numbers there. Let's say God does 75% of it, we do 25. Fantastic, wonderful, isn't that great? Here's the problem. That makes it so that God does not completely act for our salvation. Either God doesn't completely will our salvation. It means that it's just, it's just not there. And Luther, even though he's raising this, he looks at that and says, that's a load of crap. The idea that God only works 75% for our salvation and he sort of leaves the rest to us to kind of do on our own in sort of, some sort of independent way. Let's look at the Bible and say, that just seems like a load of crap. And I actually think he's got pretty good instincts there. I, I wouldn't disagree with him in that sense if you are thinking in these kinds of terms. And so he looks at this, whether it's 50 50, whether it's 75 20 or 25, or however you want to add the math up. Um, that's the framework he inherits, and he, he objects to it. He says, there's no way that that can be. But he maintains the same nominalist philosophical framework. And so because of that, well, the only option is God does, boy, let's get a real racer. Uh, God does 100%. He acts 100% for our salvation. You know, if you think Romans 8, you know, the one who gave his only son for us, shall he not give all things? Absolutely, that's good, basic, you know, biblical kind of one-on-one stuff. But what does that leave for us? That leaves zero for us. It means that we don't have any role whatsoever within it. And so that's why to try to get even a little bit is itself such a fundamental sin for Luther's thought. Um, look at another one. Uh, so righteousness, bad. Um, Free will. What about free will in Luther's thought? Not a big fan. Uh, Luther, if you read his Bondage of the Will, it's clear that free will is the invention of the devil. This is an idea that the devil went made up to try to confuse people and destroy Christianity. Uh, it's satanic in origin, the idea, and he is very clear that he believes that from a biblical standpoint, free will, no place for it whatsoever. And then he says this, even if there were free will, I would not want it. How do you explain something like that? Again, it goes back to this. If you understand the way of, you know, understanding how our action relates to God's action, it totally makes sense how free will doesn't make sense here because there's only one actor in our salvation. And also, even if you could have it, what would it mean? It just means that you would lose it because we're fallible humanity. And so, of course, we would mess it up. So, free will, very bad. Don't like it. What about... This is... Uh, sin. So here's one of those really interesting things that you have. It's one of the paradoxes of Luther's thought. Uh, we were talking about this, uh, was it yesterday? Um, he's, he says things along the lines of a lot of, a lot of different places. One of them, uh, he says, uh, sin does not harm us as much as our own righteousness. Sin does not harm us as much as our own righteousness. How do you make sense of that? Sin does not harm us as much as our own righteousness. It makes sense if God is the only source of righteousness. If the only way that you can arrive at righteousness is completely passively receiving it from God, who does 100%. Sin is not really going to get in the way of that a whole lot. What will get in the way is you going and trying to carve something out for yourself. That will absolutely get in the way. It will distract from it. 
and you will turn yourself into a self-idolater. You will try to displace God and put yourself in his stead. That's why sin does not harm as much as our own righteousness. Now, again, those are statements. They might seem a little wild to you, but there's a real intelligibility to them, and it has to do with the underlying framework that he's holding to. Let's go really quickly through how it is that Luther then reconstructs this. So for Luther, when it comes to the nature and place of justification, forensic is what he takes it to be. It means it's just the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't have anything to do with the change that's taking place in us. It's interesting, he doesn't actually start with that. It takes him a couple of decades to really you know, work that out after the Reformation before it begins. This then also means that for him, it's going to be outside of us. This isn't going to be a change that's taking place within us, within our hearts. It's going to be outside. The timing of it, he tends to focus on initial justification. And this is, you know, the moment of, you know, baptism. Um, as far as a progressive justification, like growing in righteousness, again, because it's strictly declarative, it's the forgiveness of sins. Well, there's, you know, there's not a whole lot of progress you're going to make, make in that. Um, the means of this, this is one of the things that's really distinctive about Luther's, Luther's thought. He talks about faith as an entirely passive action. Entirely passive. You think, how do you get a passive action? Where do you get one of those from? It's a really good question. Uh, it's, and it's, again, it's one of the things that can be hard to explain in his thought. But he talks about this active righteousness and then a passive righteousness. He says, this is a completely passive righteousness. We receive it simply by faith, by faith alone. There's nothing else. And we can't do anything to earn it. So here, works, whether they're empowered by God's grace, not empowered by God's grace, doesn't matter. It is, works of the law is anything that is not the complete receipt of this passive righteousness. Because again, were it otherwise, you would be trying to get into God's territory, to get something that is his. You would be trying to break in for yourself, to take your role from him, the role of savior. Um, so that's what you have there. And then finally, the context. So Paul and James, <laughs> um, he uh, pretty emphatically says, nope. Uh, this is one of the really entertaining things that is thought. If you uh, just go through the whole history of his career, the kinds of things that he says about James. Uh, one of them we were talking about, was it yesterday? I think it was yesterday. About uh, uh, one day he will throw Jimmy in the oven. Um, so uh, he's not a fan, not a fan of James. Um, there's still, sometimes you can get things from here and there, but he's really honest and says, James cannot be, con- cannot, cannot be, you know, held together with the pure doctrine that Paul is teaching. And so it's, you know, I think some Jew wrote it to confuse people. It doesn't think it was even written, written by a Christian. And so uh, that's why for him, you have to get James out of the canon. It doesn't, it's just not authoritative in the same kind of way. It doesn't, it doesn't make the cut. Now, again, that's radical. That's a radical move. But because of the philosophical framework that he's holding to, hello, Mr. Emberger, um, it makes sense. It absolutely intelligible. And so two things that I want to say for the Luther interpretation. One is that it has Catholic and biblical theological instincts. It has Catholic and biblical theological instincts as far as the affirmations go, as far as God's complete action for our salvation. Because again, all of the church fathers are also going to say, yes, God acts 100%. It is also logically consistent. They, you might reach what seem like very radical positions, but it's logically consistent. The third thing that you would say, however, is that from a philosophical standpoint, it's interpreting the scriptures from a much different understanding of how divine action and human action relate to one another than the prior tradition. And this is really what sets this huge wedge in his interpretation of the scriptures from prior, you know, the preceding tradition that's there. One other thing to say, we're talking about Luther. This isn't to make Luther all of Protestantism. He is, I think, doctor of justification within Protestantism. He is the person who is, you know, most prominent. Um, but other kinds of Protestants coordinate things in other kinds of ways. So if you look at Anabaptists, for example, um, my wife is originally from a Mennonite background, and so this is the kind of Protestant that she was. Um, they hold to all of the early church stuff. They just, it's basically the same. The role of baptism is a little different, but they don't differ from the Catholic Church and the preceding tradition on this. And so it depends on what kind of Protestant you are. Uh, you will have different ways of coordinating this. And some kinds of Protestants will look at 
you know, the preceding traditions say, we have big objections. Other ones will say, actually, we don't have any problem at all. And so uh, Luther, uh, he has a funny line where he says that the Anabaptists and the Papists are wolves tied together uh, at the tail. Um, because even though they tend to not agree with each other on lots of things, when it comes to when it comes to justification, when it comes to works, they still want to leave some element of conditionality, something that is necessary in humanity's response. And from Luther's standpoint, that just gets you back in this conundrum where you're trying to take something that belongs to God. What let's do is I want to wrap it up by looking. Jumping forward into contemporary biblical interpretation, um, I think that one of the things that's really interesting about the landscape of contemporary biblical interpretation is how there's a recognition that these issues are actually the issues that lie at the heart of a lot of these debates. It's not, you know, so much do you believe in justification by faith? Do you believe in justification by works? Do you believe in this text? Do you not read the text? Everybody's reading the text. But it's this underlying understanding of how our works and our actions relate to God act, God's actions. That's really the key issue. And what's fascinating is that within, again, modern Protestant biblical scholarship, it's actually Protestants themselves who are the people who you know, are actually leading the charge for understanding our action, divine action, as being compatible in this way rather than this way. Now, that's a really significant change, I think. Um, and I think as far as ecumenical you know, promise goes, there's a lot of ecumenical promise there. You'll find that you know, Lutheran theologians, Robert, Robert Jensen, is uh, really one of Lutheran theologians, who just looks back and says, that's, that's an error. Um, and he's you know, still Lutheran, but he looks like, I think that this is philosophically, this is an error that we're falling into. Um, the, the person who I... Uh, I, would, I would say is most influential in this is the, the Protestant biblical scholar John Barclay, uh, whose work is really good and um, who uh, I've just drawn a lot of inspiration from myself. Um, I want to read you a section uh, from his book, Paul and the Gift, which is um, some people, uh, I think it was my own advisor, described it as the most um, important book on Paul written in the past 40 years. And I think he's probably right. Um, I think it's a pretty, a pretty good assessment. Um, so I'm going to read you this, this section um, from his, his book, Paul and the Gift. A short little thing, but he's talking directly about this. Neither monergism nor synergism of independent actors will do justice to his, this is Paul's, varying expressions. So neither monergism nor synergism. So what's monergism? Monergism is the idea that only God acts. There's only one actor. Synergism of independent actors means what Gabriel Beale was talking about. So here, God does 75, we're an independent actor, we'll do 25 if I can do math. That would be the synergism of independent actors. And what he says is, neither of those do justice to what Paul is talking about. Despite the understandable concerns of some of his interpreters, Paul does not seem anxious to preface every reference to believer agency with mentions of its prior grounding in grace. There is no doubt that life in Christ is sourced and constituted in the Christ event, but the believer is thereby created, not diminished as an actor. I'm going to say it one more time. There's no doubt that life in Christ is sourced and constituted in the Christ event, but the believer is thereby created, not diminished as an actor. Paul's language requires us to banish zero-sum calculations of agency, that is, the more God, the less the human. It seems better to speak of a pattern of energism in Pauline agency. His perinesis points simultaneously to the divine and believer agency as the expression and realization of the good news. I'm going to leave us with one biblical example of this, which I actually think is really helpful for saying, hey, which of these philosophical frameworks is itself more biblical? I think that Philippians 2 is really helpful for this, which is what Barclay is drawing on um, primarily. So here, this is Philippians 2, uh, 12 and 13. We'll end with this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear 
and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.